You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please turn there now in your Bibles. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and faith of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF. So good to be with you. For those that may not know me, my name is Tim Allen, and I serve here as lead pastor. This is your first time joining with us. We just want to say welcome. Thank you for joining in this service, and we hope that it is an encouragement to you wherever you find yourself this morning. And one of the things that we've been highlighting is the listening sessions that we as an elder team have been privileged to have. And so we just want to say thank you to those that have taken us up on that offer and for those that may not have heard about that, we, would, we have just opened the door for those that would like to sit down with us. We would love to hear your heart, the ways perhaps that you've experienced pain or hardship in and through the church. You, you're welcome to meet with myself or maybe me and one other elder or all the elders. And it could be you, your family, perhaps even your uh, a few few other friends or whoever you desire to be a part of that. But um, would you please email us at elders at ebfchurch.org. And we would long to be able to sit down with you in, in a listening session and hear your heart, especially heading into our upcoming elder retreat on February 26th and 27th. Please circle those dates to be praying for us as an elder team. But we know that those listening sessions and and other things are key inputs to our time together as we seek the Lord, His will and direction for our church. As we come to hear God's word this morning together, would you join me in a word of prayer? God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, we humbly ask for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. As we open your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we might delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. For the longest time, I had a dream to see the Chicago Symphony Orchestra perform Gustav Holtz's The Planets. 
Now that might seem like an oddly specific dream, but I, I played the trumpet in high school and uh, had the opportunity to perform at one point a medley of the planets, including Jupiter, which quickly became my favorite. And from that point on, that was a dream of mine, to see the CSO play the planets, which my wife helped make a reality for my birthday in 2016. You know, in many ways, a local church is like a symphony orchestra. With different musicians coming together with their unique backgrounds and skills to create beautiful music in harmony with one another. But imagine if one section, say the strings, starts showing off and seeing how fast they can play. And then the brass section gets aggressive and starts playing louder and louder, louder than anyone else to the point where you can't hear anyone else. As a brass player, I can admit that that is uh, one of our tendencies, but imagine the woodwinds too getting so upset that they stop playing altogether. They just, I'm out. And then the percussionists overreacting and starting to chuck their drumsticks and mallets at the rest of the orchestra. Sounds kind of crazy, right? Actually, when I was in high school, we literally had two groups within our band. One was called Burn the Woodwinds, and the other was called Down with Brass. And it started off in good fun, but sometimes I wasn't so sure. But think about that orchestra. Their music, or what was left of it, would sound terrible, and the audience would head for the exits. And the conductor would have to stop them all and offer a stern rebuke. And that's sort of like what we find here in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. As our conductor, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, uses his word expressed through his servant Paul to challenge his church to maintain unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is an exhortation to live worthy of our calling by maintaining the unity of the Spirit based on the oneness of the triune God. So let us this morning sit under the word and the Christ of the word as we are challenged by what we might call four C's, four C's of Christian unity, calling, character, concern, and confession. So let's dive in beginning with calling. Christian unity begins with our divine calling. Verse 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the hinge point between chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 6. And therefore here grounds this exhortation in what has just come previously. Knowing Christ's love in all of its dimensions, its height, depth, length and width, this is what calls us to live a life of love. And so Paul moves from who we are in Christ to how to live in Christ, from doctrinal truth to practical application, but still with significant theological truth baked into this latter section in Ephesians. Or we might call it from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, that is from right belief to right practice. Paul also, in a way, sorts starts to pick up the tempo in the second half. In the first half of the book, there are more sweeping and soaring truths, even longer sentences in the original Greek, whereas in the second half, it becomes more, more imperative, more staccato, more, more of these practical application points that he drives home. This movement of biblical truth to practical application 
is formative for us as well. With this gospel foundation, it should call us to obedience. It should call us to obedience. Without that sort of gospel foundation, any sort of call to obedience ends up sounding like empty moralism. There is also a great challenge to integrating our beliefs and our behavior. What we believe should be reflected in how we live. And so the header, really for all of chapter chapters 4 through 6, is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Everything else from this point builds upon that. What it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To walk means to conduct one's life. It's a, it's a metaphor for living. And how we are to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling really is answered in the rest of Ephesians, but here begins with unity. This sets the tone for the rest of the letter. And the first theme that we take up is that of unity in the Spirit. The beginning of chapter 4 here, too, is a charge to live together in a way that embodies the sort of cosmic unity that Paul has spoken of in chapters 1 through 3, the cosmic unity that God has inaugurated or God has begun through his, his Son, Jesus Christ. The calling that Paul highlights has rich roots in Ephesians 2. It starts with God's plan before the foundation of the world. It moves to the blessings of salvation, like the fact that we have been adopted. We have been redeemed. We have been sealed with God's Spirit. And this calling finds its goal in the summing up of all things in Christ. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. For Paul, then, his walking in a manner worthy of the calling has landed him, of all places, in prison. We've been reminded of that along the way, particularly in chapter 3, but he was willing to undergo suffering for his beliefs. This was not just hypothetical for him. And this ends up lending to an even greater weight and a credibility to his, his exhortations. Especially when we remember that the reason he is in prison in the first place is because of his conviction of the sort of unity he now calls the church to maintain. So Christian unity begins with a recognition of our shared divine calling. God chose us in him before the creation of the world. He placed us in this orchestra together. And in Christian circles, we often use calling, though, in the sense of perhaps like the call to ministry or the call to become a missionary. And while that is good, while that is right, we must remember that first and foremost, all followers of Jesus Christ are called. This is vital for how we then treat one another in the body of Christ. We must remember that to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called is a steady, enduring, deliberate, one step in front of the other sort of act. Paul envisions a lifetime of faithfully living out the very call that he has placed upon the life of every believer in Jesus Christ. So Christian unity begins with a recognition of our shared divine calling. Second, Christian unity depends upon Christ-like character. Look especially at verse 2. It says this, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
In this verse, Paul weaves together five closely related character qualities. Each of these are picked up and demonstrated in the life of Christ and vital and are vital for Christian unity. The first is humility. In the first century world that Paul addressed, most viewed humility negatively, unless it was that notion of self, self-abasement, the, the lowering of oneself before a superior. But that is not how Paul approaches humility. No, instead of inferiority, it is a valuing of ourselves appropriately, especially in light of our fallenness. Paul's ministry among the Ephesians was characterized as serving the Lord with all humility in Acts 20, verse 19. Humility also means submitting to one another and regarding others as more significant than ourselves. Its ultimate expression is found in the humility of Christ himself. Philippians 2 paints this rich portrait for us in verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. C.S. Lewis reminds us that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Don't miss the significance of humility coming first in this list of character qualities, these qualities that are aimed at guarding unity. The opposite of each of these qualities can so easily stoke division. And in this case, the opposite of humility is pride. I remember my my dad, who also is He's an engineer, but also a musician. It's kind of neat to see those come together. But I remember him telling a lot of musician jokes. And one of them was, how many sopranos does it take to change a light bulb? One, and the world revolves around her. I'm sorry for any offense that may have caused, but it it is so easy for us to have that mindset that the world revolves around us. We must renounce this sort of self-centeredness and pride and instead display the kind of humility that puts others before ourselves. So with each of these qualities, there is not only what we should put on, but we should, what we should put off. Not only should we put on or take up humility, but we should renounce pride and self-centeredness. The second quality is gentleness. This could also be translated meekness, but it is not to be confused with weakness. Gentleness means being considerate of others and being willing to waive our rights. It means acting in a manner that is courteous, that is mild and even-tempered, consciously exercising self-control instead of using power to retaliate. We see this too in the life of Christ. Think about Matthew 11 verse 29 when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Harold Honer, an an American biblical scholar, points out that this term is is also used of the taming and training of animals. I found this really striking. He writes, For instance, controlled by the master's will, 
a well-trained dog is always angry at the master's foes and never angry at the master's friends. Only the person who is controlled by the Spirit of God can truly be gentle, angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. When such a person is wronged, he or she does not seek revenge. But when a wrong has been committed toward a brother or sister or a body of believers, he or she has the power to address the situation. In Ephesus, where there was the probability of great differences between believing Jews and Gentiles, believers needed to have both humility and gentleness. I love that. That really struck me, especially that part of of gentleness conveying this sense of being angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is vital for Christian unity. And like what we must renounce with humility, with gentleness, we must renounce harshness, cruelty, the notion of steamrolling and dominating in our relationships, and instead being considerate of others. You know, the way some Christians present themselves is so combative and so off-putting that no one wants to be around them. Even if they are in the right, people can be repelled by their abrasiveness, even repelled by their rightness. Gentleness values the other person and demonstrates sensitivity rather than harshness. The third quality in this sequence is that of patience. In essence, patience means steadfastness, restraint, or keeping an even keel. Think of the patient endurance of Abraham who awaited the promises that God gave him, or the patience of God toward his own people. Exodus 33, 34 verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Think too of the Old Testament prophets who waited for God's action. Patience is yet another fruit of the, of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, Paul writes, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Christ's patience is seen in his relationships with people, especially in how he dealt with the disciples. And there is perhaps no greater example of patience than God himself holding back his wrath in the face of human sin. Romans 2 gives us a picture of that. Patience means waiting and enduring often without immediate results. Think, for example, of a farmer who plants, waters, tends his crops while awaiting the harvest to come. I can't help but think of my own, our own family's adoption journey. The patience that was needed in, in that season of waiting, in hope-filled anticipation of what God would do. Patience is a steady endurance that does not abandon hope. It is yet another necessary quality for preserving unity and maintaining relationships in the body of Christ. Paul saw patiently. Paul saw patience needed especially between the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles who were now united in the one body of Christ. And that same patience toward one another is needed in this day and age as well. We must renounce the tyranny of our own timing 
and the notion of our own agenda. And we must restrain the desire to seek revenge on the one hand or to escape on the other hand when, when confronted, when, when in these seasons of difficulty. In that opening example, think of, think of those, for instance, those that engaged in, in seeking to withdraw the woodwinds versus those who sought to attack in vengeance like the percussionists. Reflecting on how patient God has been toward us should cause us to display that same patience toward others. Oh, how patient he has been with us. Patience leaves room for people's failures. Patience endures wrong. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, defined patience. This is something that has stuck with me for a long time. Defined patience as having a wide and big soul. I love that notion. Having a wide and big soul. This sort of soul largeness can withstand things like annoyances, failures, difficulties over time. Why? Because there is room enough. We all have a sense of when we think certain things should happen, when we think certain things should play out. Think of Veruca Salt and Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory as she sings the song, I Want It Now. I want it now, but how easy is it for us to have that same mentality? We want it now and we want it all. A lack of patience, to borrow from John Chrysostom, a lack of patience is a narrowness of the soul. Patience is a vastness that has room for people to fail. It has room for people to grow. It has room for people to fall on their face and for people to mature at their own rate of speed. The fourth quality is closely related to patience, and that is forbearance. In fact, forbearance is almost a way in which to live out patience. Bearing with one another in love could more appropriately be translated putting up with each other in love. Putting up with each other in love. This clarifies the meaning of patience and provides maybe a more full-orbed definition or expression of patience. Forbearance means to put up with, to withstand something unpleasant or difficult, whether on our behalf or on behalf of others. Think especially of Christ's perseverance, Christ's turning the other cheek in the face of suffering ridicule, and ultimately going to the cross. We must renounce intolerance and irritation and instead practice restraint. It is worth recognizing that we have all been a burden or pain at one time or another. Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) This should cause us to put up with the faults and attitudes of others. We must also resist the urge to what I might say is to take our instrument and go. To take our instrument and go elsewhere. Since we are bound to one another in the body, a conscious choice, a conscious decision must be made to not let one another go. This kind of behavior, though, is only possible because of God's love, and that's exactly where Paul goes next. Love, this final quality, 
embraces and sums up the ones before it. And it is the first of the fruit of the Spirit. It is an extension of the vast dimensions of Christ's love in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Romans 5 verse 8 reminds us of this sort of never-stopping, unending love. It says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We must renounce not just hate, but indifference toward one another as well. The love experienced in Christ must be extended to others in order to preserve the sort of unity that Paul's talking about here. Think about our own families and our friendships. This whole notion of putting up with in love. You could put quotation marks around that. Putting up with in love is just something that we do. It may mean tolerating certain choices, certain lifestyles, tastes, or inconveniences. Perhaps those who know this best are parents of teenagers. And I I just have to admit here, our daughter Izzy, I feel like she's three going on 13 here. But putting up with love is also something that churches should do as well. It may mean leaving room for differences in worship style, things that may not be our preference. It may mean going through a trying time with a person or with a group, but it does not allow writing people off. It doesn't allow for saying, like the Burger King commercial, have it your way, and then opting out, just walking away. Colossians 3 verse 14 says, And above all else, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love has the power to bind us together, to bring the orchestra together in perfect harmony. Love tunes us to the heart of God. These five Christ-like qualities promote unity among believers and cause those around us to sit up and take notice. It is the Spirit of God who produces and cultivates these qualities, the qualities that are needed to maintain unity. I just have to say that with all that I know our church has been through, I have seen so many in our church exhibit these qualities, exhibit humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. So a part of me here wants to encourage us in saying, keep it up. And where it's needed, we need to heed the admonition of our conductor, the chief shepherd himself. Because without these essential qualities, we have no hope of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Christian unity depends upon Christ-like character. Third, Christian unity should be an urgent concern. Look particularly at verse 3. Paul continues, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity in Christ is the overarching theme of Ephesians. It is the goal of the cosmos when everything will be summed up in Christ. It is accomplished through Christ's reconciling work on the cross that made Jews and Gentiles one new people in Christ's body. And the united people of God then broadcast God's multifaceted wisdom to the heavenlies. 
What Paul emphasizes here is that we should be eager to maintain this unity. He doesn't call us to manufacture or create this unity. No, we are called to maintain it. It is the unity God has already begun in Christ. That unity we see in chapter 2, especially in verses 11 through 22. Being eager to maintain it conveys a sense of urgency. It is not something that is easily translated into English. You might notice the ways different translations mark it. The NIV has it as make every effort to keep. The NASB says being diligent to preserve. Eugene Peterson in the message I think captures the essence well when he writes, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. These urgent terms rule out uh, an attitude of being passive or kind of a wait-and-see approach. Marcus Barth, the, the Swiss theologian, writes, "Yours." this is his way of, of, uh, of helping us understand this, the, the essence of this phrase. He writes, yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I couldn't help, I'm sorry, this is just where my mind goes, but I couldn't help but hear in that phrase Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, come on, do it, do it now. But that is the essence, that is what is being conveyed behind this. Make every effort, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's like, it's like saying, spare no effort. Make it a priority. Take continuous deliberate action. The unity that is ours is because of our common experience of the Spirit. Did you notice that? The unity of the Spirit. It is the unity that God's own Spirit creates. It is not, again, to, to emphasize this, it is not by our own achievement. Yet it should be fiercely guarded and urgently maintained. The unity of the Spirit should be maintained in the bond of peace. The term for peace here is similar to that term that Paul uses for prisoner in verse 1. Even, or I'm sorry, the, the term for bond here is similar to the term that Paul uses for prisoner in verse 1. Even as Paul is bound in the Lord, we are bound together in peace and in the unity of the Spirit. These bonds are not the chains and shackles of oppression. It is not an oppressive thing to be shackled or, or bound to one another. No, these don't weigh us down. They are the bonds of blessing and of peace, just as Paul's bonds were not ultimately Rome's. He had to look past the physical reality there to understand that it was part of his very sharing in the afflictions of Christ. He understood the blessing that went along with those physical bonds. Church, Christ himself is our peace. The unity we share in the Spirit of God is founded upon Christ's loving, peacemaking act on the cross where he created one new people and forever linked us together, bonded us together. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, as Colossians 3 reminds us. Actually, that passage in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15, is a great companion to the passage that we're in here in Ephesians 4. I highly re recommend taking a look at that passage. Paul hits on many of the same notes of emphasis in that passage as well, but 
we are not required at the at the core here we are not required to manufacture a unity that does not exist that should be so immensely freeing for us to think of here we are not required to to manufacture or to cultivate or to or to not cultivate but to create or to gum up a a unity that does not exist instead we are to we are tasked with fiercely guarding the unity that is already ours the unity of the spirit is real and it must be fiercely guarded living in such a way that undermines the unity of the spirit flies in the face of Christ's reconciling work on the cross it's like saying his sacrificial death that reunited us to God and one another really doesn't matter to us can we honestly say that we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in reflecting upon this passage this week in particular I couldn't help but confess before God and I confess to you my sisters and brothers as well how there have been times that I have not taken this seriously that I have not been eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that I have not made it the priority that it needs to be let us recommit ourselves to being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit This maintaining of the unity does not mean a unity at all costs. It does not mean sacrificing essentials of the faith to achieve it, as we will see here in just a few moments. But it does mean striving to be peacemakers. What happens though when in seeking to make peace, when in reaching out to people and what happens when people are unresponsive to that? Romans 12 verse 18 reminds us it says this if possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with all people while we want so much to be able to control the responses of others and the actions of others this is a reminder to us that it is it is up to us in the sense of as, as far as it depends on us to live at peace to extend to extend the openness and the invitation to display humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance and love, but allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do. Christian unity should be an urgent concern. And fourth, Christian unity rests upon gospel confession. Christian unity rests upon gospel confession. Look at the last 3 verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, in reading that passage, we can't help but see the repetition of one in these verses. The oneness of the triune God is on full display. There's actually a a connection between the Greek words that are used for unity and one the first syllable of the word for unity in verse 3 is the word for one it's like saying oneness and one in verses 4 through 6 here though Paul gives seven 
oneness statements that are part of our common gospel confession. These provide the basis for our unity, the unity spoken of in verses 1 through 3. The groupings of three reflect the Trinity. The first three oneness statements are connected to the Spirit. The second three are connected to the Son. And the last one, which then has three all statements associated with it, is connected to God the Father. So let's, in our remaining time, let's just take up these seven oneness statements. First, one body. Remember, the church has been Paul's primary concern in this section. Think back to Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The body of Christ is, by its very definition, one. Each local church, then, is a demonstration of this heavenly, glorious reality. Each local church is also a representative of the one unified body. This is where the unity of the Spirit should be made visible. And so, one Spirit, Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Christ's body is animated by the one Holy Spirit who gives us access to the Father, who seals us with the Holy Spirit and baptizes us into the one body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The Spirit cultivates unity and connection within the body through His indwelling and empowering presence. The Spirit even more seals us and also guarantees our inheritance. And so we affirm one hope. We do not have separate or multiple hopes. The first question in the New City Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, as Ephesians 2 reminds us, we we are separated. We are without hope. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to a particular hope. The hope, Paul says, to which he has called you. Elsewhere, he calls it the hope of the gospel because it is found in the saving message of the gospel. He calls it the hope of glory. In Colossians 1, because we will share in Christ's glory when he appears. Perhaps the grandest expression of hope in Ephesians is God's purpose to sum up everything in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. The church then is a a foretaste of this grand hope. Remember what Paul has said, the church is a community of, of former rebels, Former rebels, a multi-ethnic community where diverse people have been brought together into the unity of the one body of Christ. Our unity should be motivated by a sense of expectancy. Why? 
because this is where everything is heading. Our one hope. Then in the grouping, the next grouping, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Lord is a title for Yahweh in the Old Testament, but it was also used of Christ by early believers. And so the, the affirmation, Jesus is Lord, is the fundamental truth of Christianity. Jesus is Lord on the basis of his resurrection and his exaltation. And from the beginning of Ephesians, Paul affirms the Lordship of Christ. The Lord is the source of every spiritual blessing. The Lord Jesus is the object of our faith. The Lord Jesus is the head of his body, the church. And the Lord is the sovereign ruler of the entire universe, the one in whom God's holy temple is growing. Now Paul says here that he is even a prisoner in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One Lord, one faith. The primary response to the one Lord is that of faith. One faith here refers to the biblical truths that we profess, our common Christian beliefs that we hold dear. He uses it similarly to the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation in Ephesians 1. One faith looks back on Paul's unpacking of the gospel in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 to stress that there is only one gospel. The expression of one faith is one baptism. The way Paul uses baptism here seems to point to the baptism of all believers and to the one body of Christ when they come to faith in him. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Baptism and unity are also closely connected in Galatians 3, 27 through 28, which says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Water baptism, then, is an outward sign of the inward reality of our being in Christ through the work of the Spirit. Despite our man-made disputes on the mode or the timing of baptism, there is only one baptism by virtue of there being only one Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are united and one body into which we are enveloped. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and last, one God and Father of all. This is where all hope, this is where all hope for cosmic unity rests. Behind this is the Shema, the confession that Yahweh is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This stresses his creatorship over every living thing. And here God is over all and through all and in all. That three-part reflection mirrors then the Trinity. Over all speaks to his transcendence sovereignty and authority. Through all speaks to his all-pervasiveness and his omnipresence. And in all speaks to his imminence and his nearness. Our unity and oneness are 
rooted in the transcendence and sovereignty and presence of God himself. You know, my my siblings and I could hardly be more different. Perhaps you have a, a similar experience. Yet despite our differences, we have the same Father. We are sisters and brothers who are committed to loving each other. And after all is said and done, we're family. And so we are as a church. Having the same Lord, believing the same gospel, and experiencing the same baptism should motivate us to live out our unity. Peter O'Brien, one New Testament scholar, puts it this way when he writes, The church is the eschatological outpost, the pilot project of God's purposes, and his people are the expression of this unity that displays to the universe his final goal. Maybe to borrow some some army terminology, the church is God's forward operating base in the world. Being united in the essentials of the faith is, is what Paul is emphasizing here, but also being reminded of the fact that we can leave room for convictions and preferences. This is not a unity at all costs that Paul envisions here. It is not a jettisoning of the essentials. But this is also not sacrificing unity at the first sign of differences. Christian unity rests upon our common gospel confession of the oneness of the triune God. So church, let us live worthy of our calling by maintaining the unity of the Spirit based on the oneness of the triune God. Christian unity begins with our divine calling, depends upon Christ-like character, should be an urgent concern, and rests upon gospel confession. As we will see in this chapter, unity is both our starting place and our final goal. So let us reflect on the unity that is already ours because of what God has done through Christ and our common gospel confession of one God in three persons. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate in our lives the sort of Christ-like qualities that we need, those of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And let us be peacemakers, fiercely guarding unity, admitting honestly when peace is lacking, and taking the necessary steps to make peace peace. Church, may we look to our conductor. May we heed his admonition and play beautiful music together so that the Evanston area and beyond might know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. And as I, as I do so, I want to pray over our church, Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17. When he prays over his body, when he prays over his church, that they may be one. May this be the cry of our hearts. Would you pray this along with me? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth 
that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen, church. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.